Hello and welcome to the Lies Podcast. On this episode, we're going to be taking on a lie that uh, you may have encountered. Uh, maybe you've heard Christians say this. Maybe you've seen it posted on Facebook like I have. And that is the lie that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. Now, before we go into that, I wanted to kind of preface all this uh, with something that I put together this week. I wanted to share this with you. And it follows last week's episode where I talked about temptation and temptation is a lie, that temptation is based on lies. And a number of different things that I brought up as we talked about the very uh, nature of temptation, that temptation is based on a lie. And you can go back and listen to that if you missed it. But there were a number of different things that came up through that podcast that I realized when I completed it would be really helpful uh, for future episodes. And so I put together a little something I call the Matrix of Truth. Yes, the Matrix of Truth. So uh, if you, uh, I'm, I might try to put a copy of this on the, the uh, Lies Podcast Facebook page, uh, but you could also just write this down if you wanted to, or you could just listen. And uh, basically, this is how it works. Uh, I made a little matrix, a little a little test, a little uh a little standardized form uh, to plug things into and put them to the test. So this is basically how it goes. Uh, it starts off with number one. Number one, what is the lie? And so today's lie is, that we're going to talk about uh, is that all sins are equal in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and then what we're going to do uh, as we go through this matrix uh, is there's a number of different things that we uh, that we'll look at. So it'll say, what is the lie? Then the next question is, how is scripture used to support the lie? Uh, what is the context of that verse that's being used to support the lie? And is that is it consistent with the totality of scripture? And sometimes it's not necessarily that a scripture is used in particular, but there are assumptions that are made, this and that, that kind of thing. Um, the next question is, what is the truth? Now, I may end up moving this toward the end, but for now, I've got it as number two, what is the truth? So what is the lie? What is the truth? And the next is how does this lie call into question God's plan, God's promise, God's provision, or God's per, uh, God's person, his attributes, who he is. Um, and so again, it's something I talked about last time that, that uh, this is one of the things that lies will do that, uh, that when we're tempted to, uh, to sin, um, we're believing something that's calling into question God's plan, God's promise, God's provision, or God's per, uh, God's person. Um, the next thing is, how does this lie elevate man? How does it elevate man? We talked about this last time as well, that that uh, false teaching, when we talk about false Bible teaching, uh, will do this over and over and over. This is one of the great tests of false uh, false teaching in the Bible, is, is or false teaching of the Bible, rather, uh, should be, does this elevate man? Does this make me great, me powerful, me more important? Uh, does it make my part in salvation big and God's part small? Does it promote or elevate man? And what goes along with that is, does it demote God? Does it lower God's position? Uh, ultimately, does it take away from the finished work of the cross? So going back to our matrix that says, how does this lie? First, call into question God's plan, purpose, promise, in person. How does this lie uh, elevate man? How does this lie demote God? How does it appeal to, and this we talked about extensively last time, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, 
and the pride of life. We talked about those things from First John, that these are the uh, these are the things of the world that we ought to watch out for. And they really fall into like there's some some sometimes they're hard to identify. And we start lust of the eye. It sounds a little strange, lust of the flesh. But you know, lust of the flesh is basically like the desire for pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, the lust of the eye is more of looking at things and desiring them. So maybe it's the idea of more like prosperity, the, you know, looking, pursuing that kind of stuff. You know, and, and these are the things that, that we uh, easily fall into chasing. Uh, and, and if you look around the world, you're going to see people chasing after pleasure, that that's the focus of their life is enjoyment, um, just, you know, pleasing themselves, whatever it is, whether that's food, alcohol, partying, uh, laying around, playing video games all day, um, sleeping, you know, just reading books and watching movies, uh, maybe it's sexual stuff, whatever, just the desire for pleasure. Um, less the eye, more that uh, along the line of prosperity. And then pride of life is that elevation of self. So that kind of fits into what we were talking about before, you know, about it elevating man. But, um, but does this, does this, a lie appeal to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, or the pride of life, which is kind of like the two of the other big P words. We talked about pleasure and prosperity. The pride of life would be more along the lines of the idea of popularity or prestige, people admiring you, people uh, wanting to know you, be people liking you, uh, drawing a crowd, being famous, that kind of thing, uh, or power, the pursuit of power, having that influence um, over others or over uh your situation, whatever that might be. So, uh, so th that's that. That was like section three. Starting off, what is the lie? What is the truth? How does this lie call into question God's plan, promise, provision, uh, person? How does it elevate man and demote God? And how does this lie appeal to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life? The next thing on the matrix of truth is what is the fruit? What is the fruit? What's what is the result of this lie? Um, and again, we're, some things in this matrix don't work depending on on the lie. Some lies are not a twisting of scripture; they're just a blatant falsehood <laughs> that's that's separate. There, are, so we're going to look at things that that Christians believe. We're going to look at things that uh, other groups believe. Just lies that people in general um, believe. And uh, so some of them are going to fit into these. Uh, some of them, I think we'll be able to see each and every step we'll be able to identify. And some of them, I think there's just certain little spots where we're going to go like, oh, okay, I see where this fits in. And I, I will do that today. Um, so the next thing is, you know, what is the fruit? What is the result, um, the bad fruit of the theology? And some of this goes back to Romans chapter six. And in Romans chapter six, it talks about um, for the Christian who is forgiven, if they continue in sin, what are the results? You know, in, in Paul or, you know, should we... Is it okay? Can a Christian continue in sin? If where sin abounds, grace abounds more, then should we continue in sin? And Paul answers, certainly not, or heaven forbid. Um, you know, and he says things like, how can we continue in those things of which we were once ashamed? Because one of the results of continuing in sin is shame. He also talks about, you know, the, uh, the problem with slavery. You know, wh why would we return to those things of which we were once enslaved? And the last thing is, you know, the wages of sin is death. You know, that's the re end result of sin is it brings death, death to your uh, relationships, death to your walk with the Lord, uh, physical death. Uh, 
those are the results of sin, slavery, shame, and death. Those are the big three. So those are things we'll look at as well as we go through the matrix of truth. And finally, I just started making a little list of additional things to consider. And that list, uh, I have a few things on it, but the big one I think is why do people embrace it? And I think that was going to go back into an earlier question of what it appeals to. But hey, let's take a look at this today and let's plug in our lie of the day, which is all sins are equal in the eyes of God. So here's the here's the thing. I, I don't know if you've heard this or not. Maybe you've never encountered this, but I've encountered this quite a bit where I've been talking with people or I've been part of a conversation and I've heard people say this statement, all sins are equal in God's eyes. Well, all, sin is sin. They'll oftentimes say that. Sin is sin. And the thing I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to be a one who throws the baby out with the bathwater. And I don't want to throw, um, I don't want to keep the baby in the bathwater. You know, that's the whole point is you get rid of the bathwater. That's, that's the idea. So we want to be careful about this and we want to be looking at this carefully. And, and so let's, let's plug this in and just go with the first thing on the matrix of truth. And that is, how is scripture used to support uh, this lie? Okay, so the whole reason I, that I even was thinking about this this week is my daughters and I have been studying through the book of James. And in the book of James, we came across uh, James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, James is talking to the church about uh, partiality and the problem of showing partiality. And he says, Brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. All right, so that's that's bringing us up to this point. So basically, um, if that was a lot of gibberish uh, to you, basically what he's saying is if a rich guy and a poor guy walk into your church and you show special treatment to the rich guy, you are being a judge with evil thoughts. You are showing preference to this person. And why? Is You value this person? Is this person more valuable than the other person? Because that's not true. We that That's we, we know that that's not true. We know from the scripture. And I, I think that's the thing he's assuming, that the reader's going to go, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they're not. But this is something people do. People definitely in churches, unfortunately, show partiality. I, I used to go to a church, and uh, it was a, kind of a, a mega church. And a few years after I'd left there, um, I remembered seeing an interview with uh, a pastor or the pastor, the senior pastor from the church, on, with a professional athlete that went to the church. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, here they are hanging out and doing like radio interviews. And then I saw another interview with another person that I knew attended the church who was an Olympic, um, an, an Olympian. And they were interviewing her and asking her about, you know, inter, you know, who, who's her, who's on her speed dial on her phone. 
and she was like, well, it's, you know, my mom, my sister, I don't remember the exact order, but it was like my mom, my sister, my pastor, etc. And I thought, well, this is very strange because I happen to know for a fact that people at that church don't have access to the pastor because there are so many of them. There's thousands of people. And if you want to talk to the pastor, you have to go through a lot of other people. And chances are you're not going to get to talk to him because there's just too many people. He can't minister to 10,000 people. But I thought it was odd and maybe a little disturbing that the famous people had access to the pastor. I thought that was a little, uh, it kind of made me cringe. Kind of made me, maybe, uh, and maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that, you know, I'm sure that there, maybe there's a whole lot more to the story than I, that I don't know. Actually, I know there's a lot more to the story that I don't know, but it's one of those things that we have to be careful. Like, Hey, wait a minute. Am I, am I showing preference to the people in my church that have money? You know, that's, that's kind of the, the, the thing because people do this. Honestly, um, I've been involved in enough churches that know that people will bend to the guys with money because they don't want the church to close. They don't want the doors to close down. They don't want that big family to leave. You know, they don't want, you know, and, and so oftentimes this, this stuff happens. And so James is saying, don't, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Now, at the end of it, he says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then here's the kicker, right? He says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. All right, I'm going to read that again. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And he goes on to explain it. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So anyway, so he, he's basically saying this, that if you break one point of the law, you are a lawbreaker. You know, And this is something we see throughout the Bible. In fact, the first three chapters of the book of Romans are talking about this. And, and Paul talks about, in the book of Romans, about different groups of people. He talks about those people that are blatant, obvious sinners, you look at their life and you go, man, that person's, they practice wickedness. You know, um, there are some people that it doesn't take a whole lot of time and discussion and, um, and study to realize that, and that, that person is a blatant, obvious sinner. Um, then he has a group of people that are those who, uh, approve of those, the, those who practice blatant, obvious sin. Those who say, "Hey, you know what? We're um, we're gonna we approve of your your lifestyle. We're not gonna do it, but we we approve of it." Now, Paul's conclusion is those people that practice such things are worthy of death, <laughs> and then he says, "And those who don't practice such things but approve of those who practice, they're worthy of death." And and then he goes on and he says, you know, he talks about those who are self righteous, those who look at those people and go like, "Ugh, well, I'm not I'm better than them." He goes and he says about talks about how like you do the same things, you know you might you you do the same things you who you you can look at them and say ah oh, blatant obvious sin well you know you've committed blatant obvious sin you know it so you're guilty too, and then he talks about the Jews those who would say well we're the Jews we have the law we have Ab we have Abraham we have Moses we have the you know we have the law and the prophets and he goes uh, yeah you're guilty too. Um, and, and then, of course, he does. He, his whole point is that all, all are guilty. All have fallen short. 
Um, so his whole point is bringing us to the point where we say, oh, we need a savior, right? That's the whole point that he's getting to is, is everybody is in trouble, everybody. So what happens here when people read this and they say, hey, if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it, that this is where we get this idea that people have. Uh, this and I think also just uh, kind of a misunderstanding that comes from the gospel. It's just a common thing that people misunderstand. So uh, I think a lot of people, they read this and they say, well, he's saying that if you break the law in any point, you're guilty of all of it. So it didn't matter if you, you know, you got mad and you kicked your dog or you killed somebody or you exaggerated on the size of the fish you caught. You have broken the law and you're a transgressor of the law because you've broken all of it. Your one sin makes you a sinner kind of thing, which Again, we, we sin because we're sinners, uh, and we're sinners because we sin. So, uh, and so you've probably heard this before. Maybe you've heard the gospel presented in this way that, like, God's standard is perfection, right? God's standard is perfection. So, one sin, one sin makes you a sinner. One sin, and it didn't matter if that sin was, you know, you're a mass murderer, or if that sin was you lied and told somebody you were going to stay home and wash your hair rather than go out on a date with them. You know, and and what people tend to hear is like, oh, all sins are equal in God's sight. Well, the truth of the matter is all sin are equal in God's sight in, as far as making you guilty of breaking the law, breaking God's law. Yes, one breaking it in one point, you've broken it. Um, but does that mean that all sins are equal in God's sight? So. I would say I'm, I'm just going to present, well, maybe just one scripture that shows that this is not the case. So, because that's the question is, okay, what's the context of the verse being used? We talked about that quite a bit, that the context here that he's talking about um, is not saying that, you know, all sins are equal. What he's saying is breaking one sin makes you a transgressor of the law. Uh, but Hey, if we flip over to John 19 in John 19, 11, um, Jesus here is uh, speaking, and he is speaking to uh, Pontius Pilate, and um, so uh, so anyway, so in verse ten of John nineteen, it says Pilate said to him, "You know, are you speaking of me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you?" And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, if he says, hey, you know, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Well, then we see right there very clearly that for one thing to be greater than, they are not equal. I know this because when I was a kid, we did alligator mouths. I don't know if you're familiar with alligator mouths, um, the greater than and less than symbols, right? And if you had six and seven, you'd have to put in six is less than seven. Our teachers always say they were alligator mouths. The, the side that was open went toward the bigger number. Now, as I'm older, I know they're greater than or less than symbols. They were not equal symbols. And so Jesus right here says, he who is still the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so, uh, yeah, there it is. So not all sin is equal. 
there's also other spots in the Bible where Jesus talks about degrees of punishment. You know, there's this degree, you know, he talks about that a number of times about, you know, the men of Sodom rising up against this generation or, or you know, it'll be more toler tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for, for this generation or for, for the people in this area, whatever. Um, so we we see this there, right? This is, and, and the other thing is, I think as we go through this, we're just going to realize that it's just, it's just irrational to say that all sin is equal. So anyway, so the first one was, what is the lie? What is the context of the verse being used? Is it consistent with the totality of scripture? No. The truth is that not all sin is equal. So let's look at this a little bit more. Um, how does this lie call into question God's plan, God's promise, God's provision, or God's person? So I just want to zoom in on one because as I, as I saw the, as I looked at these, I don't think that every lie is going to call in the question all of these things. I think you're going to see that they tend to go toward one or the other. And in this one, I think it calls into question God's person. And in particular, God being a God who is just. God is just. And uh, in calling into question God's justice, right? Because the question that this brings out is, is how can God not see that me telling my wife that she looks great in that dress when I think that mm, she doesn't look that great is equal to me killing her. Well, first of all, let me back up and say like, I don't tell my wife she looks great in a dress. If I don't think she looks great in a dress, usually she does. Um, but just the same, how can you say that telling somebody that they look nice in that dress or, Oh, I like that outfit when you really don't is the equivalent of killing them. Well, it's not, it's not. And it just makes God look foolish when you say, Oh, all sin's equal to God. Like, well, okay, that, that's uh that's silliness. It just calls into question, um, God's justice. It just, it, it just does. So, so anyway, so that's one of those things I think that right away we say, well, this is, this is not this, we just know, we just know that, that there's, there's a difference in our human courts. We know there's a difference between jaywalking and rape. We know that there's a difference. There's a different level of punishment. We know this. And so let's move on. So the next one, how does it elevate man and demote God? Well, I think it elevates man by making big sins equal to little ones. Now, I think I've often said this to people that um, we should be careful about thinking of things as big sins and little sins, because the danger for us often is that we think of things as little sins as not being a big deal. And anytime we think of sin not being a big deal, that means we've been deceived because sin is always a big deal because sin always has negative consequences. And those negative consequences aren't just uh, coming upon me, but they affect the people around me. Um, the world is neg affected negatively by the ripple effects of my sin. And so uh, just those little, little lies, the thing about little lies is it, it makes it easier to lie more. Um, take this from a long time liar. Um, I know that it just becomes a habit and uh, it's a dangerous thing. So anyway, what I think the danger of this is, is it, it makes big sins equal to the little ones. And I'm going to explain that more in a little bit, I think, because that's the way this is used. The way this, this statement is used is not to say, hey, you know, those little things that you think aren't a big deal. God says they're equal to murder. You know, that thing you think, you think that that, you know, you think that you, um, 
you know, you were looking at the television and there was a commercial on with a scantily dressed girl and you were gawking at her um, the whole time. That's, you know, that's just as bad as going out and shooting all your neighbors. Um, so, you know, you're think about that, you know, I, I, and that's never used that way. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. But I think this is the danger is that it that it elevates man and makes our big sins little. And that uh, makes me a little bit more righteous. And that's usually how it's used. And I'm going to talk about that more as we go. So the next thing is, how does this lie appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, or the pride of life? So I think this one really falls into the category of the pride of life. Because it is usually said in a way that attempts to justify behavior and silence critics. That's how it's usually used. It's not usually used, like I said before, to make little sin seem big. It's to silence those who are saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Those who say this lifestyle is wrong, or the ones that say this practice is wrong, or those who say doing this hobby is wrong. The Bible says this is wrong. Usually this is where this is plugged in, where it's usually said in a way that attempts to justify the behavior or to silence the critics. And I've seen this. I've seen usually, usually when I've seen this, especially in online conversations, it comes up because somebody's trying to say, you who are pointing out that this particular group or this particular practice or people that believe this are wrong, it's brought up like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Well, what about you? What, you know, yeah, you're picking on, you're picking on people that are doing that, but you know, you've got your own sin. And so, you know, take care of the plank in your own eye before you, you know, take care of the plank in your own eye. Take care of the, and again, if you read the book when Jesus talks about, you know, taking the plank out of your eye, it's so that you may be able to help them with the speck in theirs. It's not take care of the plank in your own eye, the end, because people like to the end things. Another example is one of the favorites, right? Um, and actually, I'm going to save that. I want to talk about that in a bit. So uh, we'll come back to one of the favorites. So anyway, um, I think it appeals to the the pride of life, that that elevation of self to say like, hey, I'm not so bad. I'm a good person. You know, be, you know that don't tell me I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, so anyway, let's move on. What is the fruit? Well, the fruit, I think, uh, of this, the danger is, is it slavery, shame, or death? You know, well, I think what really happens and what I've seen, the way I've seen this used, the danger, the danger is just enslaved, having people enslaved, being enslaved in sin because you are making big sins equal to little ones. You know, there's a difference between, and this, there's a distinct difference, especially in First uh, John, you'll see this a lot. There's a distinct difference between walking in sin and stumbling in the sin practicing sin and, you know, and occasionally stumbling into sin. There's a difference, right? As a Christian, we should not be comfortable ever just walking in sin, just being in a sinful state, sinful position and continuing on in it. That should not be comfortable for us. That's not something that, that we should participate in. When we catch ourselves, we need to go like, oh Lord, and repent and come back to him. The problem is, is when we start making these things as not big deals, because, well, you have your problems, so who are you to point out their problems? Who are you? Who are you to point out? Jesus said not to judge. Jesus said not to judge. Um, we'll talk about that lie later on. Um, but uh, anyway, I think slavery is the thing because it when you when you don't confess sin, 
as, as a Christian, when you don't confess, confess sin, uh, you're allowing that sin to take a hold and to enslave you again. Because we know as a Christian, we are forgiven for our sins, past, present, and future. So why do we have to confess our sins now? If I'm already forgiven for it, if Jesus paid for it on the cross, why do I have to confess for what I did today? And the really the reason is, you know, 1 John 1, 9, which talks about, you know, conf confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, um, to, or to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's keeping the sin from grabbing a hold of us. It's keeping us from enslaving ourselves once again. That's the beauty of confession. It's coming back into agreement with God about what is true. All right, so additional questions to answer was, why do people seem to embrace this? Why do people seem to embrace this? I think number one is, it sounds right. It sounds right. Because when people heard the gospel, they heard that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the God. You know, falling short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of our, you know, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before God. They've heard all these things. And because they're not full, they're not familiar maybe with the greater context of scripture, they've understood like, yeah, one sin made me a sinner. It didn't matter what that sin was. It doesn't matter if that sin was, you know, exaggeration or if that sin was drunkenness or if that sin was spousal abuse if that sin was coveting, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. That one sin, that was enough. That was enough to separate you from God for eternity. That's what we may have heard when we heard the gospel. And what we start to put together is, well, one sin is one sin. And so therefore all sins are equal. And so I think that's why people embrace it. Number one is because it sounds good. Number two is what I was talking about before. It allows them to bring down or diminish the seriousness of sins. And the way I've seen this used the most often is in the is in the realm of sexual sin. Um, and this is another thing that I did not bring up earlier, but sexual sin is dealt with differently in the Bible. Paul talks about it, that sexual sin is different because. And uh, anyway, first first Corinthians 618, Paul wrote, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does, it's outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And so he he's there's a difference, right? It's not the same as all the others, right? Again, not all sin is equal. It's different. And he points out that there's a difference to sexual sin. And this to me is one of those things I think, you know, when I was a youth pastor, I probably neglected this because I think a lot of us, when we talk about sexual sin, we just, we're talking about like, that you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. Uh, you know, the Bible says, you know, don't have sex before you're married. The Bible says, you know, that we're supposed to flee from this stuff. But I don't ever, I mean, maybe I did, but I don't know how much time we ever start talking about why, you know, the, the whys, the, 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 the science of, of our brain chemistry that God created this amazing thing of, of the way our, our brain creates um, neural pathways and pleasure sensors and dopamine and the way that that it bonds us to our spouse that when we experience pleasure from with this person um, it bonds us to them um, much like uh, all the counterfeits that bond us to the wrong things you know when people engage in pornography they build these pleasure centers by looking at this um, 
this, you know, these images and, uh, and oftentimes, uh, there's physical stuff that goes along with that. And so they build these, these, uh, these neural pathways, these pleasures, these, these pleasure pathways that are built and then they need more, right? That's where they go to. And that's, that's sexual sin against your own body. It, it's, it damages you. It damages you. And so when you embrace this stuff, when you think like, oh, me making out with my girlfriend, well, we don't, we're not doing a whole, we're not, we're just, we're just kissing and cuddling and, you know, or we're just, we're just snuggled up all this stuff. Well, no, you're, you're creating neural pathways in your brain. Things are happening to you physically that are bonding you to this person that you're not supposed to be bonded to yet. And when you go on to the next girl and you do those things and you bond with her, you start to create a pattern not of bonding you to one person, but this, these strange, um, alterations in how you see people, how you see women, how you, you know, those type of things. And I, and I didn't consider those things when I was a young man. I didn't consider those things. A lot of times when I was a youth pastor, we would just say, don't do this thing rather than warning. I'm like, Hey, if you get involved with this, it's going to alter, it's going to alter you. There's going to be physical changes in the way that you think. There's going to be physical changes in the way that you experience pleasure. There's going to be physical changes in you that are going to affect the way uh, that you relate to your spouse. If you get married someday, you're going to deal with some fallout. Now, does that mean God can't repair you and restore you? Absolutely not. God can. But I'm not going to start preaching. God will restore you. So go ahead and have fun. You know, no, no. When you give in to temptation, it's easier to give in the next time. So anyway, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but the whole point is the way I see this used most of the time is when people are trying to um, defend or um, I guess defense the right word, um, defend those who are being maybe attacked for sexual sin um, and sexual sin being anything outside of the husband and wife marriage relationship, uh, man and woman, as God created in the Bible. I'll let you look that up on your own. But Jesus said, you know, in the beginning, God created the male and female um, and talks about them marriage. So you can look that one up on your own. But I, I this is where I'll see this. When somebody brings up something about some sort of sexual sin is that then it come, becomes like, why are you attacking this group? Well, you know, don't you know that all sins are equal? You, you, your sin, your sin is just as bad as theirs. Like, well, yes, my sin might be just as bad as theirs, but does that make their sin okay? Because if my sin is just as bad as theirs, is still sin, you know. Um, but usually, what try, what ends up happening is saying, well, like, you know, you you've got the the you've got the plank in your eye. Also, don't you know that all sins are equal in God's sight? So why don't you go worry about your own thing? And, you know, again, it's it's trying to take the blame, take the, the accusation uh, away from them. And usually it's followed with the favorite statement, which is either, well, I guess I have two. One is, you know, God said, Jesus said not to judge. Why are we being so judgmental? Well, Jesus didn't really say not to judge. That's part of what he was saying, but in the same sentence or the same paragraph, he's telling you to judge. So you got to read the context. Anyway, um, the other favorite is the woman caught in adultery. I'm sure you've heard the story where 
um, the religious leaders bring a woman to Jesus and they said, this woman was caught in adultery. They throw her at his feet and they say, you know, what does the law say should be done? And Jesus um, gets down and starts writing in the dirt. And he says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And the men leave one at a time from oldest to youngest. What he was writing on the ground, we don't know. Uh, lots of people like to speculate. I'm not going to do that. But whatever he was doing, he was writing on the ground. And he said that he was out without sin, cast the first stone. And they all left one at a time. And so then Jesus says to the woman, you know, where are your accusers? Where are, where are those who accused you? Well, they're all gone. You know, they're all gone. So that's usually where they finish the story. Like that he was out saying, cast the first stone. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story, the whole story is that Jesus says at the end to the woman, go. Right. He says, where are those who, where are those who condemned you? And she, um, she says, they're gone. And he goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't just wipe it out and say, oh, yeah, go your way. They didn't condemn you. No, he's telling her, no, go and sin no more. What you did was wrong. What you were doing is wrong. Don't do it again. Right? He doesn't use he, the, 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 the whole thing that they're using to defend lifestyle or to defend uh, sexual sin. In most cases, again, most of the time I see this, this is the case. They're defending certain things, usually sexual sin, and they bring this up. Say all sins are equal to try to say, oh, no, this one, it, you know, go deal with your own stuff. Hey, deal with your own stuff. But they forget that, yeah, Jesus said, go and sin no more. He didn't say to the woman, yeah, you're, those guys are a bunch of jerks. He says to her, "Go, don't, don't sin anymore. Go, go, don't do that. Don't do that again." You know. And so, um, so what do we take from this? You know, I think there's some important things. So, kind of to sum this all up, let's not get a couple things mixed up. First of all, we are all guilty. We are all unworthy, right? We're not worthy of God's love. We're not worthy of Christ's forgiveness. We all need a savior. All those things are true. All sin is wrong. All sin has negative consequences, and Jesus died for all sin. Sin is equal in that way. Uh, sin is equal in the fact that it all has negative consequences, that it's all wrong, and that Jesus died for all sins. Um, however, however, um, to say that they're all equal is incorrect. Um, it would be like me saying, yes, apples are food, pancakes are food, and uh this messy squished banana that's on the floor, it's food. Um, they're all equal. I think most of us would decide, no, that those are not equal. Um, nobody wants to squish banana on the floor. Um, and then we can argue over the banana and the, or over the apple and the pancakes. But yeah, there's certain things that are the same, but there are certain things that are not the same. So anyway, all sin is consequences. All sin is wrong. Jesus died for all sins. Jesus paid the price for all of our sins. But let us be careful not to not to draw these strange conclusions that all sins are equal, which again calls into questions God's justice. Because we just know, we know. And if we think a little bit past our nose, we come to the place to say like, yeah, no, it's not all the same. It's not all the same. Me hitting my thumb with a hammer when no one's around and saying a bad word is not the same as me going and beating up somebody. It's not the same. It's not equal. So, we need to be careful that uh, we recognize that uh, we recognize when people are using this 
or when we're using this argument or this lie as an attempt to justify ourselves or the behavior of others. Anyway, I don't know if you've ever encountered that one, but maybe someday you will. And uh, hopefully this was a blessing to you. Talk to you next time. God bless you.